For the next few months, uh, we're going to consider what God says in His Word concerning the all-important issue of worship. And we're going to do so by means of studying the first four commandments. This was Calvin's approach. As you read through his commentaries, he took the, the commandments of God and then searched throughout the Scripture as to make application to each one of those commandments, which are in summary form in the Decalogue. And so we're going to do likewise, God willing. I'm convinced there's nothing that we can study that is more important than our worship of God. For as we worship God, so will we live before God. As we worship God, so will we live before our families. As we worship God, so will we live before the world. But as we consider the first four commandments, we must have the proper motive in obeying God in this area of our life, in the area of worship. We must be properly motivated. And that proper motive God gives to us in the introduction to the Ten Commandments. The motive that I understand God to be trusting upon us is twofold. First motive is God is the sovereign Lord and thus we must fear Him. The second motive is that God is the gracious Redeemer, therefore we must love Him. This uh, Lord's Day, we will be looking at that first motive to our obedience. Why should we obey God in the area of worship? Well, the first reason God gives to us is that He is the Sovereign Lord, the Creator of all things. We are His creatures. We are obligated and duty-bound to obey God because of His great and lofty position. Next Lord's Day, God willing, we will look at the second motive, and that is that God is our gracious Redeemer who has delivered us from the bondage of sin just as He delivered His people from bondage in Egypt. So He has delivered us from our enslavement to sin, to Satan, to the world. And therefore, we are not only duty-bound to obey Him, but we are love-bound to obey Him. And so with that twofold motive before us, we will begin looking at our worship of God laying this foundation I think is absolutely necessary and that God himself gives to us as an introduction as a preface unto his commandments how do you make the gospel the Lord Jesus Christ appealing to men. How do you make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive 
to those who have even you've even mentioned this morning that you want to declare the gospel to. What is it that is going to draw them unto the Lord? Well, in many churches today, I probably do not need to inform you of this, but I'll just uh, I'll go through several of these techniques. Many people would seek to make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive to their neighbor by employing various marketing techniques of Madison Avenue and of Hollywood. You might bring the gospel, they would say, down to the level of a materialistic society by accommodating people. Packaging the gospel in such a way that they would want it. That they would buy into it. So that it appeals to them. And so, if you're going to do that, uh, this materialistic Hollywood uh, uh, view uh, would tell you you must avoid certain words. You must avoid words like sin. You must avoid words like repentance and hell because that's going to turn people off. Next, uh, perhaps you should give them a a healthy dose of uh, self-esteem from the pulpit. Make them feel good about themselves and what you say. That will draw them in. Perhaps even entertain them a little. Loosen them up by perhaps a dramatic presentation, a skit, maybe even some kind of uh, uh, so-called religious dance. uh, uh, Just uh, loosen them up a little bit. Don't, uh, don't observe, they might say, and I know this to be the case because I've talked to men who hold this view. Don't observe the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day because there might be people who are present in the congregation who would be offended because that they're not invited to partake, that they're excluded from the Lord's Supper. And whatever you do, you don't want to give the idea that you're excluding anybody. There are many, we could probably go on and on with the various kinds of worldly methods that are being used to reach non-Christians. They are not biblical methods, they are worldly methods. And they may fill their churches with people, but what those people are hearing is certainly not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are hearing a false gospel, very clearly. Compare that to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. And the Apostle Paul makes no apologies at all when he says, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. You know, that's a little different in my mind than the money changers that were in the temple, which Christ, whom Christ chased out of the temple. 
people of that nature are merchandising the gospel, seeking to make the gospel attractive. Let me ask another question. How does a church, how do elders within a church teach their flock to lead godly and holy lives at home, at work, at school, in their communities, at church? Well, some would say again that the way in which you teach people to live holy and godly lives is by beginning within. They're not going to love their neighbor until they properly love themselves. They're not going to love God until they first love themselves. And so you need to focus upon building within them their self-esteem. Tell them again and again, don't doubt yourself. You might even tell them, we're not going to set the standards for Christian living too high because if you see that they're this high and you can't quite reach that standard, you might become discouraged and just go in the towel altogether. And we don't want to discourage anybody by setting the standards too high. So we'll keep them real low so that everybody seems like they're able to meet the standards. I remember talking to a, a fellow, a friend of mine, who attended a seminar. This, mind you, was uh, a seminar in which uh, there were Reformed uh, churches present, Presbyterian and Reformed churches present. Um, you can tell by what this one seminar teacher had to say that uh, they were certainly far from, some of the seminars were far from the truth. But this one teacher uh, of a Presbyterian church in a community not far from where I used to live in Southern California, when asked about how he handled discipline cases within his church, said, well, we never have to worry about discipline cases because we renew everybody's uh, membership on an annual basis. And so, if they're involved in some kind of sin and they don't want to renew their membership, then they don't have to renew their membership. A novel way of uh, dealing with discipline. You just don't have to deal with it because it's entirely up to the person whether they want to uh, renew or not renew. And so goes all the ungodly methods that are used to bring people into the kingdom or seek to bring people into the kingdom or to lead people into a higher um, place of sanctification in their life. What they have in effect done, I'm convinced, is that they have made the church little different from other any other kind of club, whether a Kiwanis club, an Elks club, a Rotary club, any other kind of organization. And that is because, beloved, the law of God is not taught and preached. It is because the law of God is not loved and honored in those churches 
that ministers feel like they must resort to the method of Hollywood because they have abandoned the methods of a holy God. Well, what is it that God uses to prepare a man to trust in Christ with all of his heart? Very simply, God drives him to the law. God sends him to the law. That perfect standard of God's own righteousness to reveal to him that he has sinned against the moral judge of the universe. That he is deserving of God's just condemnation. God declares through the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.20 through the law of God comes the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 7 verse 7 I would not have come to know sin except through the law. In fact God defines sin as the transgression of the law. 1 John 3.4 You see, where the law of God is removed in proclaiming the gospel, the consciousness of sin is removed. And where the consciousness of sin is removed, the consciousness of a need of a Savior is removed. A Savior? A Savior from what? Many people may legitimately ask in some churches, what do I need to be saved from? One uh, pastor in a uh, Reformed denomination that has, I think, uh, uh, gone the way of liberalism and modernism says that the sin that most people need to be delivered from is the sin of low self-esteem. Dear ones, proclaiming the gospel without the law is like trying to persuade a friend with cancer who does not really believe that he has cancer that he needs to see a doctor. If he doesn't believe that he has cancer, there's no need for him to go to see a doctor. Well, unless a person realizes their desperate situation, which through God's law they've been brought to, they're not going to realize that they need a Savior. Let me also say, as we approach the commandments of God, as we'll be looking and focusing our attention primarily upon the first four commandments, that the righteous law of God cannot save you. As holy, as perfect as God's law is, the law of God cannot save you. It reveals your sin. It points you to one who can save you and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. It points you to one who has in fact kept the law of God perfectly and who will clothe you with his perfect righteousness when you trust and put your faith in him. The law of God is in fact a mirror. The word of God teaches. Now we know we don't wash ourselves with a mirror. We simply look into the mirror to reveal the blemishes and the dirt. It is the water. It is the soap which cleanses. And so it is the Spirit of God that must cleanse us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is the law of God that points out that need that we have 
of God's righteousness. Dear ones, the law of God, according to Scripture, is perfect. Psalm 19.7 The law of God is perfect, converting the soul. According to the Word of God, is holy, righteous, and good. 11.7.12 James 1.25 The perfect law of liberty is the designation that is given to God's law. The perfect law of liberty. Which certainly implies that to walk not according to God's law is to walk in absolute confusion. To walk in bondage. To walk in vanity. But to walk by God's Spirit in accordance with His law is to walk in liberty. I want to say more about that in a few moments. Uh, as the charge of legalism is uh, directed toward those who would seek to obey God's law, even in the minute details of God's law. But since it is a reflection of God's holy nature, and since we, as God's people, are being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say as an objective standard, the more we become in conformity to the law of God by God's grace, not through simply our own efforts, but through God's grace, through God's Spirit working within us, to that degree we become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ as well. For Jesus Christ the law of God reflects the image of Jesus Christ. And just as the law of God cannot justify, neither can the law of God sanctify. It is a rule and a standard of righteousness, but it is the Spirit of God that must give us the ability, the power that we need to obey it, to change our hearts, to give us the willingness to follow in his steps. And so I would submit to you, dear ones, that the careful preaching of God's law is not legalism. The preaching of God's law is not legalism nor is it harsh. But rather I would submit to you that the preaching and proclamation of God's law is true compassion. For it leads people from trusting in themselves to trusting in Jesus Christ. It shows them the futility of looking to themselves as a standard and shows them that standard of God's holy righteousness. And uh, likewise, therefore, the careful keeping of God's law is not legalism. It's actually love for God. 
It's praise to God. It's gratitude to Jesus Christ. And it's worship of the highest form to obey God's commandments. And particularly as we look at His commandments as they pertain to worship. First John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. There are those who would say and try to erect other standards having uh, accused uh, those who would seek to follow God's commandments accusing them of being legalists they would try and establish other kinds of standards. They would say, I'm led by the Spirit. Uh, I don't need the law of God. I'm led by the Spirit. As if the Holy Spirit has a different standard of holiness than the law that He inspired. Or I obey the law of love. Situational ethics. I obey the law of love. And however I deem love to be best administered in whatever situation, that's the standard of, of ethics that I follow. Again, as if the spirit of love, the spirit of God who gives true love, would have a different standard than the, the law which he has inspired. Or perhaps you have uh, heard this one, uh, just kind of throwing out to any kind of objective standard and saying, uh, using this kind of subjective standard, now what would Jesus have done in that situation? Well, unless we specifically know what Jesus would have done, because the Word of God tells us what Jesus would have done, uh, how are we to, to uh, uh, subjectively uh, find out and know and it, in effect, just becomes, again, a very subjective standard. Whatever you think Jesus would have done in that situation becomes the law that you should follow, the commandment in that situation. Now, with regard to, very quickly, uh, let me just say this, with regard to uh, the charge of legalism, I'd like to just clarify very quickly what I understand legalism is and is not. What is legalism? I believe the scripture teaches, first of all, there's three, I'm going to give you basically three uh, forms of legalism. First of all, legalism is seeking to be acceptable before God on the basis of your own obedience your own law keeping. This was the error of the Judaizers in Galatians. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 which was read for us earlier Romans 3.20 Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Whether that standard is God's law or whether it's human law, no one can be justified on the basis of their law keeping. If anyone seeks to be justified on that basis, the Word of God would consider that as legalism. A second form of legalism 
is seeking to externally obey God's law from impure motives. From impure motives. So that his obedience or her obedience becomes mere formalism, mere externalism, simply going through the motions. Where there is no inward love that the Spirit of God has worked within. That was the error of the Pharisees. Remember which Jesus Christ condemned the Pharisees for. Another form of legalism. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 about this mere formalism. Matthew 23, verses 5 and 28. But all their works they do to be seen by men. Verse 28. Jesus says, Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, for us to claim that we are worshiping God, that we're obeying God, we must not only be correct and accurate in the form that we take in worship, but our hearts as well must be united in love and faith to Jesus Christ. That's true obedience. But if we leave the, the faith and the love out, then we are simply hypocrites going through the outward motions. That's legalism. The third form of legalism that I would submit to you is this, seeking to make the standard of God's law more just than it already is as if we could improve upon God's law. In other words, adding to or taking away from God's law is legalism. Again, the error of the Pharisees, you remember, in following the tradition of the elders, they made of no effect the law of God. They hedged the law of God about with all of their particular traditions. No doubt professing an honor for God. But in adding to those to the law of God, they had become legalists, Jesus Christ declares. For example, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says... Beginning with verse 1, the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me has been dedicated to the temple, is released from honoring his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they have added to 
God's word or taken away from God's word. That is legalism as well, I would submit to you. Well then, if that is what legalism is, very quickly, what is it not? Legalism is not loving obedience to God's law. It is not loving obedience to God's law. Secondly, legalism is not loving obedience to the details of God's law. You know, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 about the details of God's law. Verses 17 through 19, Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The smallest little parts of the Hebrew alphabet. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven Jesus said one other place where he talks about the details of God's law and our obligation to even keep the details of God's law he says in Matthew 23 23 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you paid tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You should have kept the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faith, without neglecting the seemingly insignificant portions of God's law, the details of God's law, which is the tithe of even meant coming. So God calls us with regard to our loving Him and worshiping Him, not simply to look at the so-called big areas, but to look at the details as well. Those are important to God. He would not have given them to us in His mercy and His grace had He not intended them for our benefit, for His glory. And thirdly, legalism is not obedience. Legalism is not loving obedience to all of God's law. God calls us to lovingly obey all of His commandments, Old Testament and New Testament, where He has abrogated His commandments of the Old Testament is indicated in the New Testament, either in principle, precept, practice, or by necessary inference. God has negated those, abrogated those. But in all other areas, we must seek to be faithful to the Lord. In other words, what I'm saying, dear ones, is that we are to be like Christ. Did Christ fulfill the law of God so that we could forget the law of God? So that we could neglect the law of God? Is that why He fulfills all 
of God's commandments so that we could just depart from it and do away with it? He fulfilled it. That is God's law. He confirmed it. He kept all of God's law as a substitute, which we know. And it's on the basis of that substitutionary act that He imputes to us His righteousness. But He also kept it, not only as a substitute, but as an example to us that we should follow in His steps. If following the details of the law is legalism in Christ, I do not say this as if I represent this position, but I believe it is a blasphemous position to hold because of the implications. If following the details of the law is legalism in Christ, if that premise is true, then Christ was the greatest legalist around. But that was not the case. He was simply being loving and faithful in obeying his father in every area of his life. And he never violated even one of God's commandments. He was not a legalist. We are to walk in his steps. Dear ones, we are not to countenance legalism in the least. Rather, we are to love and to seek to keep God's law in every area of life. Yea, even in the details of God's law. Well, the remaining moments that I have this Lord's Day with you, I'd like to just look at Exodus chapter 20, that very first verse. Exodus chapter 20. Very brief verse. Let us focus our attention upon this verse. And God spoke all these words. And God spoke all these words. My prayer for for you as well as for myself that God would give us the heart of the psalmist who declared, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Or to proclaim with Job, I have not departed from the command of God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That God would build within us. That God would create that type of love for His holy commandments. God spoke all these words. First, let us carefully note, these are not the words of Moses. Even though it is called the law of Moses. Moses was God's mediator in giving to God's people law. But in this particular instance, God spoke all these words quite unusually, quite uniquely, in that he proclaimed them audibly from Mount Sinai to his people below. The ten words, the ten commandments of God were declared directly by God. In this case, 
without a meaning directly from God. These are not the words of some so-called uh, expert in ethics. These were the words and are the very words of God Himself. Who is the King of creation, who is the infinitely holy God who cannot look upon sin with an approving eye, who is the invisible God who fills the heavens and the earth, the all-wise God who knows all things and works all things out for His own glory. These are His words. These are the words of the judge before whom all men will stand and give an account on that final day. These are solemn words. These are serious words. These are words not to be taken lightly by any. And so God, speaking as the Lord, speaking as the Lord of creation, as the Master, declares His law to His covenant people, but these are God's word to all people, to all nations. This is His moral law. Now I would have you very quickly to note the uniqueness of the way in which God gave His law in this particular situation, which again points out the uniqueness of these particular commandments of God. Three months after the Lord had miraculously delivered Israel from Egypt by His amazing grace, they arrived at Mount Sinai, where the Lord told Moses to gather all of Israel together before the mountain because God would graciously establish His covenant with His people. And the Lord commanded the people to prepare themselves for this awesome event in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 19, which we've already looked at. Next, the mountain from which God was to speak was to be fenced with a command that no one must even touch that mountain while God spoke from it on that day, lest they be killed, stoned or shot through with an arrow. Pretty solemn warning. Uh, this must be a serious occasion for God to, to take such uh, serious steps uh, to uh, cause His people to realize uh, this situation, it's, uh, the gravity of this situation, and what God was about to do. Next, note the uniqueness of the visible and frightening manifestations of nature that were present on this particular day. In verses 18 and 19, we note that Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Not something you probably see every day uh, of the year. Uh, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Now, Imagine yourselves as being one of those particular people and witnessing this awesome sight, this mountain engulfed in smoke and fire. The mountain itself shaking the earth beneath you. Now, I know you're probably uh, in Edmonton not real familiar with earthquakes. At least uh, I'm not aware that you are. Maybe you are. 
but we have grown in Southern California to become quite familiar with earthquakes. And I don't know of a more fearful thing than to have what appears to be very solid beneath you, the earth, to just feel like jelly or jello, just to be wavering, uh, to feel like it's rubber beneath you. Uh, that is a frightening, terrible situation to be in. And then to see these huge buildings swaying back and forth. It's just something uh, to behold. It's, not something, it's something you want to see, to see on a, a television camera, but not be present to witness firsthand, necessarily. But this was what was happening to these people as they surrounded Mount Sinai. And then verse 19, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. And the word of God also teaches in, in chapter 20, verse 18, that the people witnessed thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpets, the mountain smoking. So all of these visible signs that God brought ensured in the hearts of these people, they would never forget this awesome sight, the seriousness of what was being given to them. <clears throat> then God, as if that was not enough, then God breaks forth in His awesome voice and booms forth with a mighty voice, the likes of which has never been heard since. And that's where we come in this passage where it says, And God spoke all these words. And what we find thereafter are the very words of God that came forth from His mouth to His people. Deuteronomy chapter 5 uh, is the parallel passage to the giving of God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Look at verse 22. Deuteronomy 5.22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountains from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. Now notice this next phrase. And he added no more. A finality. These were a perfect, accurate summary of all of God's commandments. And therefore I think that Calvin, again, was absolutely right to take the law of God, summarize it under the Ten Commandments, and apply to the various aspects of those commandments, all the various applications that you find throughout the Scripture. God spoke no more. This was His law to His people and to all people as well. Now these are not the nine commandments. These are the ten commandments. Contrary to the view of some, uh, the fourth commandment is still a part of God's Ten Commandments. It has not been abrogated, as we will see, God willing, in, in weeks to come. 
that we have a sacred obligation and duty before God to keep His day holy. And this is not the Ten Suggestions. This is the Ten Commandments. It's not a suggestion that if you have a better way of doing something than is here listed, that you may follow that way. These are God's commandments. There are no options. These are what God expects of us. Two more points with regard to the showing the uniqueness of these commandments. Uh, the fact that these became the testimony. A, uh, a symbol of the covenant that God made between His people and Himself. And were placed alone with the uh, Aaron's rod and the pot of manna into the Ark of the Covenant. These ten words were placed within the Ark of the Covenant showing the uniqueness of those particular words. As we find in the New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 10, it is these very words that God writes upon our own hearts so that we willingly, lovingly, cheerfully desire to obey God in keeping His commandments. Why do you, above all people, delight to obey God's commandments? Well, because He has written His law by His Spirit upon your hearts. What a joy. So that His commandments, John says, are not a burden to us. They're not burdensome. But the burden is breaking His commandments to the child of God. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul says, because he's wrestling between obeying and disobeying with his inner man, with his, the true man that has been united with Christ. He wants to obey God. And yet there's a principle of sin that wars within him. So it's not a burden to obey the commandments of God. It is a great delight to the Christian to do so. And so, dear ones, the law of God as we have seen, is perfect, righteous, holy, and good. The law of God springs from the love of God to reveal to us our sins so that we won't go whistling all the way to hell. It is given to us to restrain sin within because of its fearful consequences. And it's given to reveal to us a standard of righteousness for our sanctification that the Spirit of God will use in our sanctification. God reveals to us, first of all, that that motive for obeying the commandments with regard to worship is the fact that He is the Lord God he is the Sovereign Lord to whom our obedience is due. The Lord might have demanded your children to be offered in a sacrifice in order to prove your love for Him. He might have commanded you to cut or to maim yourself or lie in hell a while to prove your love for Him. 
But no, he rather only desires your love through the keeping of his good commandments as an expression of your love for him. Is it a hard request to love such a father as our father? Is it such a hard request to love and to obey such a Savior as our Savior? Is it such a hard request to love and to obey a Comforter as our Holy Spirit, Spirit of God that has been given to us? Was there ever any demand that was easier paid than for the child of God to obey his God. His commandments are not burdensome. They are our delight. Dear ones, God spoke all of these commandments for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Our God, we bow before you, though there is not a a quaking mountain that's filled with smoke, lightning, and thundering before us now. Your word teaches us that we are even more responsible for you speak from Mount Zion. Lord God, we pray that even now that you would remove from our hearts negligence, ignorance, hostility, bitterness, for you and your commandments. Oh God, that you would grant to us the grace to turn from our sin and to rejoice in your good commandments to us. And particularly as we focus upon the issues of worship, the various issues that are related to worship. Oh Lord God, may we delight in these subjects because we are growing in our knowledge of what you expect for we cannot render to you what you have not first commanded of us that is not an option or a choice for us oh God we pray that you would grant to us the grace as we pursue these studies to grow in our love in our humility in our fear God. We pray all these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at 
www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.